Hello. Before we commence today's interview, I'd like to talk a little bit about a conference that's coming up in Melbourne and Sydney. It's called Noman Live and it's a fantastic event. The LA-based visual effects school brings out a variety of highly skilled 3D and 2D artists who work in both the visual effects and gaming industry at the elite level. It has presentations, talks and workshops. I recommend it for both students and professionals who really want to have an inside look at how things are developed at the elite level. The event kicks off in Melbourne on March 31st and starts in Sydney on the 7th of April. I had a fantastic couple of days last year where I learnt a lot and was inspired. You can find out more at genomeandlive.com.au. Alrighty, let's get into it. Matthew Packwood and welcome to Masters of Motion. Each episode I'll be talking to some of Australia's and New Zealand's leading motion design, animation and visual effects artists. Today I'll be talking to Glenn Millenhorst, a fantastic visual effects supervisor who started his career way back in 1986, where he started off doing 2D animation for television shows and TVCs. He then moved into 3D animation where he was a pioneer in the Australian industry creating hundreds of TVCs before his studio was bought by Allure in the late 90s, where he started working in visual effects for television series and movies such as Charlotte's Web and The Pacific. Since then, he's worked on over 20 feature films, both creating the shots and visual effects supervising, on movies such as Ted, Wolverine and SpongeBob SquarePants. I'll be chatting with Glenn about his extensive career and we'll also be discussing his Battle of the Bastards theme from Game of Thrones that won him a group Emmy. Thanks very much for taking the time to come and talk to us today, Glenn. My pleasure. First of all, I'd like to talk to you about Allura. Mm -hmm. What is it like working at Allura? And how do the studios differ between Melbourne and Sydney in regards to pipeline and culture? Allura Sydney and Allura Melbourne both existed as separate companies initially and they've been um, bought together. We've both been, been bought by Deluxe. So Allura Sydney has a different pipeline and a different culture yep. to Allura Melbourne. But that said, we're you know, very committed to bridging those, those differences and it's mostly uh, just differences in pipeline. By and large, most animation companies all animate in Maya and, you know, the renderers differ a little and some of the way that, that, that they approach the work differs, but, but we're, we're really sort of working quite comfortably now. We're sharing assets comfortably and, you know, it's been a, a couple of years. Yeah, we've both sort of grown up doing what we both think is practical and pragmatic and I guess that's how companies start and evolve and, uh, and we're both learning from what's good about each other, you know, and, and discarding some things that aren't good. And do you share the work between Melbourne and Sydney? We do. It depends on the show. Sometimes a show is brought into Sydney and we'll help them with an overflow or vice versa. And sometimes we own our own uh, shows. Part of the deluxe strategy to be a global company that, uh, you know, we can get overflow from the various different parts of deluxe. It's actually nice to know that you've got that sort of safety valve. So if you do suddenly get swamped by too much work, you can say, hey, do you have any asset people free or any look dev people or any compers free to help for a few weeks to get us across the line or, or sometimes a show's just sort of split half-half. What would a month of work be like for a senior compositor or a senior animator? 
Like at the moment, we've got a couple of films going through at the same time. So if you're, say, a compositor at Allure, you may find yourself uh, working all day on one show. Sometimes you, we do a bit of horse trading and people will work on, on two. We have... Um, I mean, it's not a huge team there at the moment. I think we're 120-odd people. So we put a lot of emphasis on people having ownership of a fair bit of the work. With, with a team of that size, you need to have your own shot and really follow it all the way through. Sometimes the comping work can be creative and sometimes it can be very technical, like on Game of Thrones, you know, there was a lot of time just working with dusty plates and trying to put CG assets into different layers of haze and dust and it can be very, very pedantic kind of work. Sometimes it's a lot more creative, like Ghostbusters, which was, hey, come up with something cool for this effect because nothing's been designed yet, you know. So it, it kind of changes rapidly. How long would, say, the average animator work on one shot? Depends what's in it, you know. <laughs> you know, we had one shot in the Game of Thrones stuff that was thousands of frames long and we had a couple of animators that started on that from the very start of the show and eight months later we finished the shot and they were still making animation adjustments. And sometimes you have to turn something around in a couple of days. If it's character work like uh, something like SpongeBob, you know, we'll have a couple of weeks from start to finish on a shot, you know, with a little ensemble cast of characters, but it's, it's rarely sort of longer than that if, you know, we can help it. If you're a student, what does it take to get in the door at Allura? And then what makes a really good operator? I always look for the art first. I can teach an artist how to use software. I can't teach a software person how to be an artist. Like, I think those things don't necessarily... Like, you can learn Maya that doesn't make you a good artist. It's a tool, right? And I think, you know, because I have people that say, oh, look, I only use Cinema 4D and can I get a job? I don't mind. If we need to get a copy of that in for you to work efficiently, then we will. Or if you can do something really cool on that that we haven't been able to do a different way, then I'll be open to it. I don't care about that. So when I look at a reel, I'm looking for what I would consider to be the germ of creativity in that reel. What was the second part of your question? Once you're actually in and you've, mm. you've landed the contract and you're doing your job, what does it take to become, you know, an important, good worker? You get different sorts of people in. I mean, we work with many hundreds of different artists on, on different shows. Um, our, our workforce is constantly turning over with, with inbound sort of artists. And some people will do what you ask them to do and then that's it. They'll be twiddling their thumbs when they're done. There'll be other people who'll, who'll be keen and ask you, what can I do next? You know, I mean, compositing particularly, there's there's some people who you can give them a whole bunch of elements that aren't necessarily working great and they'll make them work and they'll plus that work. You know, they'll say, look, I didn't have to wait for that element from lighting because I found this element and I can make it do this, 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 you know. Whereas some people put their hands up and say, I don't have everything I need. I can't work until you give me everything, you know. So there's, there's just, look, and it comes down to personality. There's a billion different personalities in that place and, and everybody has a different way of attacking their work. But if I can, as a supervisor, brief some people and know that they've got the brief and that they're going to see it through and, and, and try and beat the, the brief and, and like make it better, then that's great. Do you find the trust, knowing that you don't have to worry about it, if you get people who can achieve that is a good thing? Yeah. A lot of the people who are, who are our leads of departments have been with us for many years. So I, I always feel... I always think about Allura like a family business, though we're not related. We've been together for so long, you know, for, for many years. So my animation suit, my comp suit, my modelling suit, my lighting suit, they're all guys I've known and girls I've known for, for a long, long, long time. And 
I have a, a lot of trust in them because we know what we want from each other and I trust them to tell their artists kind of what's needed. And if we have people on the floor under them who are trustworthy that we know get it and we'll give stuff back their gold and we try and hang on to them as much as we can. So what software skills do you require to work at Allura? Depends on the department. I mean, really, Maya for animation, Nuke for compositing. Um, we do a lot of uh, lighting in V-Ray, which is, used to be a Max-only thing, but it's in Maya now. We have 3 to light. You know, we, we don't have too much that's bespoke. We have our own pipeline tools that connect all that software and actually publish for us, you know, like from one department to the next. But realistically, the stuff you need is pretty much standard stuff. And you guys use Houdini? Uh, we do, sorry. Yes, yeah. we do for effects, yeah. We, we used to use a lot more Maya and stuff, but we, we're leaning on Houdini quite a bit for our effects work now. What would you like to see in uh, not a junior, yep. but a mid-level person who's coming to get a contract in their showreel? I remember seeing an animation reel from a guy who just had a dude reading a newspaper. You know, it was just an animated character reading a newspaper and he was just kind of scanning the page and having a thought and turning... And it was really well observed. It wasn't... He wasn't... You know, I see a lot of animation reels from people who do the kind of animation mentor thing of pick up a heavy box and, oh, now it's a light box and, oh, this door's stuck. And, you know, it's all this overly pantomimed crap that we don't... We tend to try and unlearn from people. You know, this it's almost like old 1920s Buster Keaton acting, you know, it's kind of overstated and over gawky, you know. So what we do, that's not to say I don't like Buster Keaton, I like him. We um, we need to find people who, who observe, study motion, study life, study lighting, studying photoreality, because that's ultimately where a lot of our work is. And I like to see some parts of that on a reel. I don't need to see, like if I see someone's reel and they've been working in the film industry and I see shots from King Kong, I want to know what they did. Or more specifically, I want to see their personal work because more often than not, you see some flashy film shots and then you see their personal work at the end and it's absolute garbage and you know that they've been a small cog in a big machine, you know. Um, So personal work's really important to me and in that I want to see observation. Okay. Uh, so you, you're going for photo reel generally over character? Well, that's only because of what we've been kind of given. Yep. You know, we, um, SpongeBob was a bit of a, of a road, you know, a little bump in the road there. But things like even Ted, who's a character, has to look like a real stuffed animal. He has to move like, you know, he's got fabric joints and, you know, all that sort of stuff. So we've, we, we tend not to go for that sort of overbearing kind of Pixar, overdone sort of animation mentor stuff. All right, excellent. What are the important things that you think people should know before they commence a career in the visual effects industry? You should know that you don't have to know everything. I mean, I learn something new every day and I'm at it all the time. Like a third of my job is learning. So you don't have to be top of the game to get in. You need to show that what the stuff I've been describing, a spark of creativity. You have to know that there's a lot of hours in it, that there's a lot of kind of thankless hours. Um, You just have to put up with that. And you have to know that there is a real path through the place if you have the drive to get through it. Like we take people on as roto cleanup artists and they really want to get into comp, we'll give them a go. And if they're really good at that or they want to get into DMP, like to matte painting, we'll give them a go. And we'll, we're very proactive about uh, giving people the opportunity to stretch their legs if they look like they deserve a chance, you know. So you don't have to come in at the very top and you don't have to know everything. Now I want to talk about women in the workforce. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just something that's sort of occurred to me as I've been building Masters of Motion. There seems to be a lot less women. How many women do you have in your studio? Well, I was thinking about that this morning. I think, I mean, in terms of on-the-floor artists, we've probably got uh, 25 to 
30, more, more around 25, but we do have uh, a lot of women in our production team as well, probably another uh, eight or nine there. And I find that women tend to gravitate towards comp or matte painting, those sorts of things. I've got one woman in effects and a couple in animation. I find more in, in the more heavily creative parts of the, the process. And, you know, it's not through any design that there's that number or whatever, it's just whatever we get, whoever we employ based on their artwork. Like, there's a lot of women coming through. Like, mm. all the courses are 50% women, mm. roughly. Well, that, that's, that's actually not a bad number compared to some of the other places. Yeah, right. What would you say to young women who are interested in a career in visual effects? Go for it. I mean, there's no, there's no obstruction. It's just... It's the same as what's for guys. It's how good your reel is. You know, I see show reels from people um, from around the planet and 90% of the time I don't even know what their gender is because their names are, are foreign to me or I don't... I don't know if it's a girl's name or a guy's name and I'm just purely looking at the work and making a decision based on that. So there's no, there's absolutely no vetting of any sort. You know, I mean, stupid for me to say there would be. There's just not. It's just, it comes down to the work and if the work's great, we'll throw out an offer and it's as simple as that. Now I'd like to talk about your career path yep. and uh, a little overview of what inspires you sort of thing. Mm-hmm. What movies inspired you when you were growing up? Back to the Future. There you go. Um... <laughs> It's like, that's, that's my favourite movie. Oh, my God. I can't believe how excited I was when I saw that in the cinema. I didn't overly get super excited just by visual effects. I was always, you know, into animation. Um, and, you know, this isn't a time, obviously, before there was any CGI, so everything was practical effects. So I used to make armatures and used to, you know, latex moulds and all that sort of stuff and stop motion and things because I like filmmaking. Um, but I never would have thought there was a career in it for me growing up in Mulgrave, you know. <laughs> You don't think that's ever going to happen. I think with the computers, it became more plausible. It, yeah, absolutely, um, for sure. How did you go introducing Back to the Future to your kids? Uh, was it as fun for them as it was for you? And you have three boys, is that correct? i got triplet boys, triplet yeah. Boys. <laughs> showing them? Oh, I love showing them those. Anytime anybody remakes something, like if they've like they remade Total Recall, I make sure that I show them the original first. Because, you know, that people like, if it's a good story, you, you forgive hokey effects, things that haven't aged well. It's like the Ghostbusters, you watch the original of that and some of that stop motion, it's quite poorly put together well, by today's standards, but it's still a cool film and, and you actually give in to the, to the narrative and you forgive that stuff. Um, but yeah, you know, they love all that stuff. I'd like to go back in time and could you tell us a little bit about how you discovered 3D? I was studying film at Swinburne and there were only eight animators doing that course and that was the only course that was really being offered anywhere at the time, I think. And that was in 86. And so I started working as a cell animator in Paran uh, for a company called Mickey Duck. And at that same time, I bought a Commodore Amiga uh, 1000. It was the fourth one in the country. Um, it wasn't even PAL, it was still NTSC. I had deluxe paint and a few of those things and I was starting to animate with that and I was starting to show everybody what I could do and I started... Uh, really, really pushing that stuff and getting super interested in that. And, and whilst, you know, I, I got a job in computer graphics uh, a year later, you could do nothing with it. You know, it was like a ball on a floor. There was no textures, no shadows, no anything. And coming from cell animation, where it was a mature, elegant, artistically, aesthetically pleasing sort of skill or a, a computer graphics was hokey. And, and, and really, it was like animating with your hands tied behind your back but it was still fascinating to me so I I kind of got in right at that at that level grew up with it through there you know um but you know everything was plotted on graph paper and it was manual entry and there was no undos and we used to render and then shoot um 
with a 16mm camera off the screen and then develop that film to screen it to see our animation. You know, we, we had a serial connector controlling the camera, the stop on the camera, you know, the shutter release on the camera, and it was very manual. Did you see the potential? Did you really yeah. think that by the time, you know... I would never have thought it would have got to this level. I mean, it was unknowable, you know, but, but things like there was, a, there was a, a Money for Nothing film clip that came out for... Um, what was that band? You know them. I do know them. Uh, Dire Straits. Anyway, that Money yeah, for Nothing right. clip came out and that was amazing. I mean, you look at it now and it's crazy how simple that was, but that was a tour de force back then, you know, and so that was a very interesting time. It's kind of like if you were sort of talk to people now and say, um, you know, when did you get into VR and, and, and that whole immersive experience, you know. I mean, whilst that was around the 80s in a really simplistic sense, now the way that that's all changing and people are questioning the way film is made with that as a new, you know, all that stuff, it's the same kind of thing. I get the sense now that uh, VR is similar to what visual effects was in, say, 1985, computer mm. visual effects. Yeah. Um, it's just they've got to reinvent the whole mm-hmm. cinema experience. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think it's possible because I remember when I started using computers that the evolve that it had was from the interest of the people. Yeah. And I think that there's a lot of people interested in VR, which is... That's right. It's probably 10, 15 years off, though, <laughs> at least. You were finishing up in your broadcast design career when I was starting my broadcast design career. Yeah, right. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> so I just... Yeah, I think that when I was starting, it was a really exciting time. Like, the mm. late 90s was mm-hmm. really exciting because computers were getting faster. And yes. that period between, say, 96 and 2002, mm. there was, like, a, a big turning curve in computer power. Oh, Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I, I, mean, I remember buying Cinefix magazine and, and, and I remember computer graphics being like a footnote on the back page because they'd done something, you know, with some, some, some Cray computer over, you know, and then, and then that thing's just gotten so big now that it's just the whole thing is dedicated to CG, you know. It'd be great if you could describe your career path and how you started working in visual effects. Touched on the fact I was a cell animator, I moved over to computer graphics in 87 and I was doing television commercials in uh, that time, but they were very simple, as you can imagine. And through bouncing around between company to company, I was quite young still back then, I I ended up uh, making my own company called Zephyr and I ran that for eight years in South Melbourne and we worked for all the local agencies, did a whole bunch of ads, hundreds of ads ultimately. And, And they got... It came to a point where I realised I was doing more paperwork and I had more personal liability and I wasn't doing as much of the creative. I wasn't animating as much and I was running a business and I had, you know, staff and I had all sorts of considerations and, and concerns and I was finishing my work at an online facility called Allura at the time. So I'd take all my animation on a hard drive and put it on their systems and then, you know, edit on tape and yep. put supers on and all that kind of stuff. And I got sort of jack of running the company and... Um, the uh, manager of Allura, Simon, who's my boss still today, said he wanted to start up some animation of their own in the company, was interested in buying my company, which I did. So uh, I sold my company to Allura, became the animation department at Allura, uh, bought my, my team with me as well. And over the years, that team grew and grew and grew, and the other parts of Allura sort of fell away. Telecine changed, the old film sort of processes fell away. And eventually the online editing fell away and it became purely an animation company. So we continued to do commercials there, which we did for years. And we got uh, a couple of people in who were pursuing feature films, but lots of local stuff and lots of Chinese market stuff. A couple of people who are still with us, Inika, who's my um, producer, and Paul, who's my uh, effects lead, and a few others. And 
we all started putting our heads together and pursuing the US market. And we got a real good go at uh, our first US feature, which was Charlotte's Web. We did uh, Wilbur the Pig for that. It was photo real animal and that was scary as all hell. And that started it. And so really people say, how'd you become a VFX supervisor? But really the, f- the film industry grew up around me and it's no, in no small part because of uh, the advent of the internet and stuff like that. You know, we get asked often, how do we run a visual effects company on the other side of the planet to America? Um, we do a lot of trips over to the US and we do a lot of marketing. We do a lot of testing for work as well. Hollywood is a very much smaller market than you think. It's, there's a lot of people there, but they all know each other and they all move around. So if you have a good name and you can manage to get your foot in the door somewhere, that good word spreads pretty quickly. Or, you know, suddenly in another studio, there'll be somebody you worked with two years ago on some other show in another studio and they'll go, hey, what about Allura? And you get a, a chance to to, yeah. to quote or to look in. That's pretty much how it goes. It's really a word of mouth kind of industry. So do you think that your work in building advertising commercials helped you when you yes. moved into... Absolutely, 100%. And what what were the things that you sort of learnt that transplanted quite quickly and sort of, I imagine it would help with the, trying to make things quicker and cost mm. less and et cetera? Exactly. You do a commercial and they say, you've got to, you know, you've got to give us all this amazing work and you've got four weeks go, you know. So back then everybody was a generalist. I used to animate light, model, texture, comp, do everything, you know. So I had a lot of general skills, which is good as a supervisor because I have to keep up with everybody's department and be able to talk logically to them about all the yeah. technical shit that they do. I have to be able to 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 not look like I'm, you know, an idiot. So being a generalist in that regard's been good. It also helps you be really practical with how you attack stuff. You can get a bunch of kids who are like Houdini freaks together and say, listen, we need to do this effect and they'll build an incredibly complex logic machine to do a tiny little thing. Whereas you know, we'd probably, you could do it much more efficiently, you know, with N-cloth in Maya or something. You know, you've got to keep thinking about we're not trying to build this massive machine. What we're trying to do is make shots for a film that's yeah. going to come out soon and be in the DVD bin in JB Hi-Fi in a couple of months after that. Over the years, which projects have been the most satisfying mm. uh, or successful? Yeah, I've got some real highlights. First one for me was uh, Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, which was a film we did for Guillermo del Toro. We were running on the smell of an oily rag for him on that one shot here in Melbourne. They had these little critters that were all hand animated, these little kind of creepy ghouls that were sort of scuttling under beds and things. And it was about eight or nine characters. And by the end of it, it just expanded to like 40, 50 in any one shot all jumping and and they were all keyframed. And it was a real challenge for us to get that looking good and looking creepy and and hitting his marks but the fact that we used to review with him and he used to just get super excited and you know like it was it was a real pleasure to sort of know that you were doing something that was being appreciated working with a director who will look at something go i love it or i hate it and i hate it because of this and they know and they don't want to go could that finger be bigger and you know and he was like that seth mcfarlane was like that and they also put trust in you to do your best and then you put that trust in your artist so everybody gets a a boost. Ted was like that for Seth because Seth was uh, trying to get that film greenlit. So we did a test for Ted here in Melbourne and we had him, I went out and shot plates in South Melbourne and we had, we built Ted and we had him walking around near the market there and, and doing some dialogue that Seth voiced and sent over for us. And we made this piece and that piece got the film greenlit and then went on to be the success that it is. So you have those moments where you help the process or you're particularly for me, 
you've won the trust of the people you're working for. SpongeBob was like that too, to work with the creators of that show who'd only ever had their character in 2D, who were very, very anti-3D and very against the idea to sort of respect their characters, invent them in a 3D form that didn't make them want to... They said that of our work, it was the only time they'd seen SpongeBob rendered 3D and they haven't wanted to hurl. So that's a real... You know, that's, that's about... I should put that on the wall somewhere. So those people, particularly those shows, particularly SpongeBob, Ted, Don't Be Afraid of the Dark. In your experience, do you think that working with the directors directly instead of going through the visual effects supervisors, do you find that more enjoyable? It is if they're uh, a VFX-savvy director, I think, or an animation-savvy director, you know. We've worked with direct... Sometimes directors are brought onto VFX movies because they're good people, they're good at directing people and they want a comedy and they want an ensemble cast. So they get a director who's going to give them the heart from the acting, but they don't necessarily understand visual effects. So they'll put a VFX soup in who can actually handle that for them and discuss things with them. Look, it it depends on the show, it depends on the director. But uh, I always like that connection with the director and to be able to talk talk directly with them about what we're doing and why. And earlier you talked about pitching. How many sort of shows would you pitch for a year and what's your sort of process in that? There's two types of pitching. I mean, there's pitching to kind of green light a show like Ted. Ted, Ted, the pitch we did for Ted was to get that film made. It wasn't to prove that we would be the best vendor for that film. Uh, and then there's other times where you're pitching against four or five other studios. Um, SpongeBob was a case in point. Um, and we've done just over the past six months, I've probably pitched three, four shows where they'll we'll do a full minute's worth of stuff. We've probably pitched four shows the last six months. Uh, so that would be getting a team of people together whilst we're busy on other films and actually building characters or scenes or sets or effects and showing proof of concept that we can do it. And sometimes you get a brief from the client about what they're looking for. They'll give you a very specific list of, you know, we want this character saying these words, walking there, picking that thing up, you know, and so you have to do that. So, yeah, it's actually a lot of work. Do you enjoy it? I do because it's the real creative end of the you know thing you're really sort of trying to solve something for somebody you've got to sort of be careful not to sort of resent the fact that you get asked to do a lot for nothing you know and it's months of work that that's probably never going to see the light of day and you you know but each of those things is is a little creative question mark so i like it have you had any failures in your career (laughs) (laughs) and what did you learn from them Look, the thing is you're always, you're always up against time, so you're always pushing work out the door sooner. Like, we could noodle on with shots for months and months and months, and so you don't have that time. So sometimes work goes out, which probably looks good to everybody, but in your heart you know it could have been better. We've never really failed to say, you know, on a, on a show, I don't think, and, I, you know, I'd be reluctant to sort of air too much dirty laundry about anything, but if there's any kind of failure, it's failure to please ourselves enough with some of the stuff um, but not always up to us anyway film as you know is a collaboration and yeah. and more increasingly these days more people have more of an opinion about stuff and it can be a bit designed by committee do shots often fail not really oh, look we've had a lot of stuff on the cutting room floor but that's only because films are generally made way too long and there's a lot of editing and re-editing now that everything's digital and everything can be manipulated forever so they'll, they'll have alternate cuts going and they'll ask for the world and you give it to them and they go oh yeah no that's not in it anymore and 
you know, those sorts of things. Look, I know the stuff that we don't do well at Allura, like we don't have a big, we don't have a lot of skills in doing kind of screen graphics and on-screen stuff, you know, like for insets in movies and like telemetry and all that. So I shy away from those things. I've had an experience with that in the past where it wasn't pleasant because we don't have, you know, motion graphics artists sitting around for the one time we need them every two years. So that's, I know what we do well and what we don't. So I try to steer the work in that way. So what is the hardest thing that you had to learn to progress your career? That I don't always get my way. (laughs) There's this great sort of thing about directing is assembling a whole bunch of creative people and getting out of their way. You know, I mean, I have to have a say creatively, but I also have to give people latitude. And sometimes, you know, in your heart, you see somebody's idea and you give them the latitude and you think, I don't think the director will go for that. You know, and occasionally they don't and I have to wear that, but then occasionally they do. And I learned that my way is not always the best way. <laughs> Although people listening to this packet of Laura may think I'm talking rubbish. Uh, just before I move on, which mm. one, uh, what made you a strong 3D artist? Like, you know, what was just the, the key skills when you were actually on the tools that made you do your job well? Practice. It's like anything. You want to you be good at something. You have to keep noodling away. Like, I'll go home most nights and still get on ZBrush and sculpt or paint or do something. It's all repetition and practice, I think. I don't think it... You know, I, I fool myself every time there's some snazzy new little paint program and you see somebody really doing some great art on it, you think, oh, I'm going to buy that because you have this fantasy that you're going to do the great art yourself and then you go, Jesus, all I'm doing squiggly lines and it's all horrible. You know, you, you have that whole thing. And that doesn't go away. But I think trial by fire, a lot of like scary deadlines, a lot of unreasonable requests from, you know, commercial days and, and a whole bunch of that stuff. And you have to be really quick and, and yeah. think on your feet. A lot of that sort of stuff has been beneficial. You know, what doesn't kill you does make you stronger. And practice. I always found that. It's the amount of work yeah. and the pressure you're under to deliver. Oh, yeah. And you just find a way. And then that finding a way, you figure out new things. That's right. How did you develop your visual effects supervising skills and... What were the important steps you took along the way to improve? I remember being called into a boardroom full of guys unrelated to to our business who were trying to roll out a new ID for uh, their company. And they had all this sort of stuff um, laid out in different colour schemes. And I was just working next door as an animator. And they went, hey, that kid is an artist. Let's get him in and ask his opinion. So I was brought into this boardroom and they had all this stuff. And they said, we've got all this stuff here and we're going to roll it out across the country. But what we don't know is what colour it should be. What colour should it be? Right. And they, and they asked my opinion. And I was like, I've got no idea. But I said purple. And they were like, of course, purple. Purple's great. It should be purple. Right. And I thought it was really interesting for me at that time. I mean, I was like in my 20s or something. And I thought that's really fascinating that all they needed was somebody to have an opinion. I wouldn't be able to back that up at that time. But I had an opinion and I just said it. So it's interesting that what I think isn't always the right thing, but I should be able to say what I think and why. And as long as I can back it up with why in my business, if I say I don't actually like, you know, this colour or I don't like the way that's modelled and I can say because and it's got to have something to do with the story or what we're trying to achieve, then it's validated and that's fine. And I think as a visual effects supervisor, that's my job to have an opinion but also to know why I have that opinion. How did you go from being on the tools to being off the tools and supervising? What were the steps? Because the animation company I started was my company and so I employed people and I was kind of just running the show. So I became, you know, I wasn't a visual effects supervisor back then but I was... I was the creative head of the company. Yeah. And so when I went to Allura and we were doing commercials there, I was the head of the company yeah. from a creative standpoint there. So, I mean, I just got given the VFX title when we started working on features. 
I mean, I also was on tools doing uh, matte painting for a bunch of films as well, just to help out. So there's films where I'm credited as matte painter and there's films where I'm visual effects supervisor. I mean, I, I always say to people, I stood still and the business grew around me. It's kind of what happened. As for a trajectory to become a VFX supervisor now, I mean, we've got guys who are supervising at work who have come from different departments. We've got one who's, a, who's come from the lighting department and he's just had a real interest in and shown an aptitude for, for really being very good with people and knowing what he wants and why. So he's working with me now on, on the, the next film and, and, and he's done his own, you know, smaller things at Allura and, and he's stepping up really, really well. So, you know, it's, there's no real pathway to it. So how did you manage working on the tools and uh, supervising at the same time? Did you find balancing that tricky? Yep. And when did you finally get off the tools? I did. I found it really tricky because you kind of want to feel relevant. You don't want to feel like you're just like a middle management kind of guy that can just do all the talking but not, you know. I got off the tools probably five years ago, I think. I still get on box if I need to do some quick look dev or something, if I want to sort of show somebody how I want the light to be or how I want a character's eye to be or something. I'll go in and Photoshop something or get onto Blender or something and just quickly make something and just show them or, you know, that sort of stuff. But as for owning a shot all the way through, I just can't do it. And 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 even my my um, individual departmental soups who still want to, I I think it's important that they keep their hand in and they have a shot if they want to. But I have no expectation that they do shots either, because it's too hard to be critical of your own work as well. Like you have to have an objectivity to the whole process. And and you know I, I like to uh, to not own a shot because then also if there's notes on it and I have to come back to it and I have to keep revising it for the director then it becomes a hassle as well and it gets in the way of reviewing and all the other stuff we have to do so I did it for a while but I really I don't think I actually gave the shots the the care and diligence that they needed because I was so distracted with supervising yeah I think that like calling middle management's underplaying it like it's a it's it's directing uh, and supervising is a whole art form in itself it's the thing that I found the most challenging in Mm. my work life um, so, yeah, it's, it's something that you could probably develop for years and years. Mm. And, and not being on the tools, I think, is a great thing. Because yes. <laughs> it allows you to focus. Uh, okay, so what are the best methods to handling serious technical problems or creative sort of failures, you know, when you try something yeah. that doesn't work? Look, the thing I wish we had more of in the business is time. You know, we're always time poor, we're always pressure to get stuff done today but 99% of the problems you have you sort of solve in the shower and the next morning you know you sort of wake up with the idea that you know you've so you know from a creative standpoint that stuff needs a little time and it needs a lot of collaboration and 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 being open to other people's ideas technically I think same deal we we have a lot of things at work where we're up against it technically and and you know we're constantly reinventing the way we do stuff so we rarely ever do a film where the tools are at 100% finished and we're all just working with a robust system. It's always being under, it's always ground under repair, you know. Yeah. Um, I likened it to to building a car while you drive it. It's all, it films very much like that. You know, there's a new system, there's a new technique, it's not fully tested and, and there's, it's such a complex business, you can't account for all the different, you know, circumstances or parameters under which that tool has to work and then suddenly something's broken or something upstream doesn't translate downstream and, you know, yeah. and so you've got to collect. We have a lot of t- a lot of meetings, a lot of chat. So there's a lot of uh, sort of troubleshooting and... Yeah, yeah, yeah. we're well, like at all those guys at NASA trying to bring the Apollo mission down, you know, noodling out pencil and paper, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, before you were understating, now you're at NASA, but... That's, uh... <laughs> 
<laughs> I honestly feel when I'm doing my work, I always feel like it's like brain surgery. It's like it's mm. very intense and full on. Yeah. You know? So yeah, I know. And then you have what... to you have to remind yourself it's not actually brain surgery. Yeah. <laughs> You're just making entertainment. <laughs> What is your day-to-day process uh, and how do you sort of interact with the, you know, the other supervisors? Yeah, okay. Well, at Allura, we're very open plan. I've always sat on the floor with the artists. I have a desk in the middle, well, not in the middle, but around everybody else, you know. And so I'll get into work in the morning and I'll have a phone full of meetings and they're all to do with all the different departmental, you know, um, heads and all the artists and talking about their work. So I'll sit in there, I'll do a lot of walking around, I'll do a lot of stairs and a lot, you know, and I like to to know the artists, I know what they're doing. So I have to sort of know uh, all the shots in a show, where all those shots are in the pipeline, plus all the artists and what all the artists are working on, particularly at that given time. So there's a whole bunch of stuff that's got to sort of stay in your head. So uh, I can't afford to be sort of in some kind of office somewhere, you know, playing cards. I've got to be kind of out there talking all the time. So when I'm not talking to those people, I'm talking to the coordinators and talking about the flow of the work through the business, or I'm in theatres with a laser pointer discussing dailies and, you know, and so I'll I'll start with animation and then I'll have effects dailies and then I'll have, you know, comp dailies and then there's two shows going through at the same time. So I've got to do that for both shows. And then towards the pointy end of the schedule, we're there till two, three in the morning with artists trying to get shots done for critical timelines. Part of my job is doing go-sees, going to the States and and meeting the clients and going to the studios and things like that. So, or occasionally being on set. But most of my day is just walking the room, talking and and making sure that nothing's holding anybody up. Sometimes artists won't know what to do when they hit a wall or there's a little problem. Uh, And sometimes I'll sort of just sort of help out or go and make sure something's organised so that that work can flow. Yeah. You know, it's all about the fluid transition of the work through the business. And do you use any software to sort of help you along that road? All our scheduling and all our data stream is all through a thing called Shotgun, which is uh, a web-based interface so everybody can see what their tasks are, what their next tasks are, how long they're, you know, all the notes from the client, any drawn over reference. So I can sit at my desk and draw all over an image and then post it onto Shotgun and the artist will get that note. Um, so, yeah, that's pretty much what we use. So now I want to move on to Game of Thrones. Did you watch it before you started working on it? How did you feel when you found out you were going to work on Game of Thrones? Pretty excited. I think if you're ever going to work on TV, that's the show to work on. And I also know that they had a bunch of vendors that they were really they liked working with, you know, so I, didn't, I never really thought we'd be the kind of company that they would look to, but I think because we have such a track record of creature animation... We came up on their radar. We, we did some work for a Seth MacFarlane film called A Million Ways to Die in the West and it had this gag with this... He hits a, a horse at a saloon and they all topple like dominoes and all these horses fall over. And we'd done that on the side in between another project. It was like a what they call a 911. It was an urgent little job. And um, the Thrones guys saw that and so they came and talked to us about the horses they needed. Do you, do you feel like you're coming across as, like, you do a lot of creatures? Mm-hmm. Uh, is, is that, like, a stream, that, like, a style that you allure yeah. sort of developing? Yeah, I think it's something we've all... Our, our heart's always been with the creature stuff. Um, there's a lot of companies that'll just do water and they'll do things exploding and all that stuff, which is nice, it's fine, but personally for me, that's, you know, being an animator and coming from a character animation base, that's not my thing. Um, we do it happily do it but it's much rather do the creature stuff and that's something we've always pushed as a point of difference when we're marketing ourselves 
I watched Game of Thrones this morning. It's, it looks seamless. Mm. Like, and I know that's what you're aiming for. Yes. <laughs> but it's so hard to tell which shots are actually the visual effects and which shots are the shot. Well, it got down to the end where the producers of the show couldn't tell which were ours and which weren't anymore, so they had to keep referring to the original plates to see what we put in, you know, which is really good. Yeah, well, they do it that. <laughs> they've got to approve that if they can't tell themselves. Yeah. What was the brief like from the visual effects supervisors and what were their aims and expectations? Were they big or...? Expectations were huge because it was the ep nine of, of season six of Battle of the Bastards. They basically, right from the get-go, were calling it their Emmy sequence. No small amount of pressure. They gave us a very robust animatic, like um, previs, uh, and that mo- that was made as much for the choreography on set as it was for us as a blueprint to work to um, for animation because, it, as you can imagine, it's such a complicated... Uh, sequence and in, in interleaving real horses with digital and what's going to be which and when's one turn into the other and all that stuff all has to be pretty well pre-prepared and you know given they've done six seasons of this stuff and their their um, quality has been stepping up so you know dramatically they were right across it I mean their their coverage the, the the plates they gave us were beautiful and and all the data they captured was amazing and you know we were inundated with with terabytes of surveys and lidars and all that kind of stuff and much better than a lot of the films we've worked on. Did they have the, like a, a locked off edit? Of? Yeah, pretty much. It was yeah. pretty much, there was a couple of little variations but pretty much what they planned to shoot they shot, which is part of that television pragmat- you know, pragmatism where you have a budget and you have to stick to it. There's not the, the kind of Hollywood excesses of fluffing around with an edit afterwards, you know, so they, they thought about it, they knew what they wanted and they went for it and it was beautiful. Yeah, it was good. Did you find that as a restraint or did you find that as actually sharpening the process? It sharpens the process. It's also as visual effects, so you know what you're working towards. You know, you're not working towards some vague goal that keeps shifting and you have to keep reinventing everything. You know, what was being built now, eight months later, would end up on screen, you know. So you've got to build what was necessary, not everything and see what gets kept. How long did you work on Game of Thrones? Mm. How many shots did you do? Yep. And what was the size of the team? 130 shots. Yep. We took about eight months to do it from go to Y, and the team was about 120-ish. But, you know, there was a couple of shows going through, so people came and went. Tell us how you overcame the massive scale of Battle of the Bastard and what were the technical and software that you used to create the epic scale successfully, I'm thinking massive yep. and positioning and depths of field on such a mega scale. Yeah, the show needed utterly photoreal humans and horses like right up to the lens and then it needed thousands of extras as well. So we'd never used massive before. We used other little systems to, to not great effect. So we got massive. We got a guy in who was at Allura Sydney who was a freelancer there who'd used it uh, a little bit on Fury Road for a bit of crowd stuff, but nothing to the kind of level we needed. This was the most ambitious bloody thing ever. <laughs> it's frightening. So we used Massive for the crowd stuff. We Months and months and months of R&D and building a brain, like a logic system to drive horses because it wasn't just like guys with swords clinking on the ground. It was massive horses with massive riders on top that were separate logic streams that could then split apart and you know like it was very complicated stuff we ended up swapping a lot of it out for keyframe animation where the massive couldn't quite there's this big overhead shot of the horses all uh, of the veil coming in at the end this big circle and they bust through the line 300 or so individual clips of animation that were done for that you know by our team they were all fed into that so we we swapped a lot of it out for 
that that doesn't include the actual animation that went into all the massive assets as well. Yeah. So all the horse galloping and veering and rearing and shuffling and all that stuff that was all animated by hand and all plugged into massive. So there were many hundreds of of keyframes of you know bits of clips of animation that went into that. Then on top of that, we had all the super duper close stuff, and that was all you know. Every horse has a couple of million hairs on it, and it's all grooms and it's simulated cloth and salary and stirrups and manes and tails and yep. muscle systems and dirt and dirt that was sticking to them. Plus every single thing we built, every shield and every piece of armour and every horse had to start clean and then get dirtier and dirtier and more bloody. So we had very, very, we had many, many versions of every asset that we had to build. So there were thousands and thousands of moving pieces in this thing. Did you have trouble distinguishing between the different groups, say the Boltons and the Wildlings? They all sort of looked the same. It was like crazy action and it was hard to tell which was which. Were you conscious of the groups, like who was on each side? You mean the different opposing armies? Yeah, opposing yeah. Armies. Oh, yeah absolutely. I mean, we had, we had one shot that was going along really well and then I saw we were sitting in the room and I thought, hang on a second, that's two Boltons <laughs> fighting each other. Not You know, so yeah. we checked and, yeah, sure enough, the, 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 you know, we had the... And we had one really funny moment where we did a whole sequence as this camera moving over all the wildlings and they're all sort of standing there milling. They're all there, like, you know, got their canned animation. And for some reason, one Bolton army guy got spawned up the front and you can actually see him looking around and looking around because the AI is kind of making him wary of... Yeah. But, you know, <laughs> it was the most amazing thing that none of it was kind of planned, but it looked really authentic, you know. So the crosses that were on fire, mm. uh, like those little touches mm. is like what made it to me was that extra bit. Yeah, there's a lot of that stuff. Yeah. yeah. So was it uh, challenging integrating the giant into the shot mm. and knowing everyone would be looking at that closely because it draws your eye? Yeah. Were you well, conscious of that? Well, he wasn't digital at all, right? He was yeah. a live guy. He was a normal-sized guy. Um, i got to say, the guys, uh, Joe Bauer, who's the supervisor in, you know, over on the state side, did a great job of, of filming a set and then filming a scaled version of the giant on green screen and 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 uh, having repeatable cameras and all that sort of stuff to, to sort of integrate that stuff well for us i gotta say dropping that giant in was probably the easiest thing for us because he just came so well prepared the grittiness of it all mm. was it harder or easier to, to create mm. the effects with all the gritty and it was blessing and a curse because i think if you look at Battle of the Bastards as a fight scene, and then you look at some of the old, uh, older stuff, like, like from Lord of the Rings. That stuff looks super clean, like the air's clear, everything's digital and sharp, and there's no yeah. grit or dirt. We had a lot of atmos and haze we, that they shot with, which was absolutely painful because we had to try and comp all our stuff deep into drifting smoke, yeah. so things would come in and out of smoke. Hours and hours of trying to get that stuff to sit in there properly. But then we added our smoke as well. So some of our stuff that we added over the top blended everything together a bit, yeah. but it was also hard to get it all into the practical stuff and behind all the, you know, we thousands of frames of rotoscope to get our guys in behind all the real guys and all that stuff, you know. So it's a blessing and a curse. The final result, I think, is worth all the pain because it's yeah. got that real visceral kind of in-the-moment feel. We couldn't throw enough dirt in. Every yeah. time we threw more dirt in, we'd have to throw more and more, you know. So there's buckets of it being thrown around everywhere. Okay, so what I didn't see was mm. it was there was an absence of blood. Like, there was blood in it, mm. but it just, compared to the rest of the seasons, I thought that there was a lot less blood. Did you? In okay. The, because the clothes they were wearing were quite, it was winter, mm. so that mm. limited the amount of blood. Was yeah. there any talk about the blood? And Yeah, there was. We, we did a lot of blood sims. It's funny that you should say that because we, we, uh, we had that thing where, you know, they, we couldn't add too much blood. 
we have things where someone gets a little slice through their leg and a huge splash of blood would come, you know, like a yeah. crazy amount. You know what it's like when you cut yourself, nothing happens, and then suddenly a little bead yeah. of blood leaks and you go, oh, that's a deep cut, you know. <laughs> On Thrones, you get a little nick and, and it's like you're yeah. under pressure, you know, it just comes spewing out. We had blood all over the place, so that's it's interesting. Yeah. That you <laughs> well, I just, uh, to me, if you're like people getting their heads chopped off, yeah. I think that the, it was very good because mm. you're following the action and the excitement. Mm. Uh, but I have also been watching uh, The Walking Dead. Oh, yeah. Which... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, we we and look, we just finished up on John Wick two, and that's just all blood. I mean, we did so much blood on that show. We we did a lot, maybe because it's just so gritty and grubby. I mean, we, yeah. there was a lot there that that looked almost dark, and it's not cherry red, no. big splashes, but there's a lot in there, so it probably all just gets blended in. Yeah. So the process of uh, animating the horses and riders. There's no mocap for that stuff. That was all just hand keyed. So yeah. what we did. Uh, we, we, we look at reference. Uh, unfortunately, we looked at a lot of horses dying, a lot of horses getting injured, yep. <laughs> you know, YouTube clips of steeplechases gone wrong and all that, which was horrible because, I mean, I'm a real animal nut. I can't yep. abide that stuff. But we, we looked at it nonetheless. But you're saving animals. Well, yeah, well, yeah absolutely, <laughs> but, you know, yeah. in a way. Yeah. It all comes down just to the animator's skill. Um, we... Uh, sometimes take a, a piece of footage and we would stabilise it so so the, you negate the camera's movement so you just see the horse's performance and its musculature yeah. and stuff and then we'd put that up on the monitor next to us and then we, we like have animation school every time we start a show like Ted, yeah. any animator coming in on Ted went to Ted school anybody yeah. that came into to Thrones went to horse school, you know yeah. Um, it's like, okay, do a horse galloping, do it running to coming to a stop, do it agitated, find some reference, copy it, you know. So yeah. you, you've got to learn. You've got to learn how to walk quadruped moves and how that mass is, is, is balanced on those legs and how that weight shifts and all those sorts of things. I imagine creating the whole scene was hard, but was there any particular nightmare parts that you had to worry about? Threat of kind of having to have your stuff super, super close to camera, yeah. right up to real animals. Whenever you, you're with... Like, if you do a monster, no-one knows what that thing looks like and you're safe, you know, but you go... It's like when we did Will with a pig. They had a real pig and the very next shot was ours and the very next shot was a real pig, you know. Yeah. It was meant to be the same character. You have the night terrors over that stuff. So that stuff on Thrones was really, really confronting. Also, us having to come up to speed on Massive and having to try and make that software do what we needed to do. I mean, it's an elegant system, you know, at, at some stuff, but there's other stuff. It's The human eyes, you know, you spend your whole time looking at motion. You look at human faces. You look at animals. You, you know, you've yeah. spent your whole life understanding how these things just inherently work, which is why, you know, have that uncanny valley thing where you see a digital actor and you go, oh, God, it's... Thousands of hours of man time have gone into it, but it still looks wrong. But it's like that as well. Like, we we couldn't have horses not being totally, utterly convincing. And so, yeah, you waste a lot of time worrying about that stuff. All right, so now I'd like to move on to some quick and punchy questions. What was the rendering-based software that you used and did you develop any new technologies for the show? No, we used pretty much standard stuff. I mean, look, if you call Massive standard, it's, yeah. you know, we, Massive, Maya, New, Houdini, you know. Yep. The usual stuff, nothing really. We we did develop pipeline tools to render the to handle the massive amount of of data. If you yep. imagine there's three thousand guys and they've got random shields around them, this random that, and then you know random animation and they've got to all be doing stuff. Or the, some of them are carrying flags, but only every fifteenth one. How does all that stuff get propagated? What were the 
techniques, you know, yeah. were used for that stuff. So, so we were trying to constantly work out what's the quickest way through or what would actually be renderable because that stuff can become unwieldy very quickly. So it was about what's the lowest resolution detail for all that that we can get away with. Yeah. And then, and then at the very end of the show, we had some massive agents right up close to the camera and they still held up okay. So I was yeah. kind of happy with that. Game of Thrones has been going now for five years and I imagine they've created a lot of assets. What were the sort of things that they supplied you? They gave us a lot of digital surveys of the landscape of the of the, where the battle is. They gave us uh, some existing assets like Winterfell, the castle, and they gave us some reference of sort of things they wanted and as well as previous. Um, lots of photographic textures of the wildlings and the and the Boltons and the you know different armies. Um, so we had lots of turntables of the actors in in situ, and every little shield and bayonet and banner and everything, you know. So, yeah, we got terabytes of that sort of stuff, but nothing else more than that. Describe the experience of winning a group Emmy. Amazing. (laughs) I I recommend everybody have a go at it at least once. It was good fun. What a massive show. Like, just just to be there and to represent the company and to get up there on stage is just amazing. Look, from a business point of view, it's really, really great. I can't say that we've been inundated with work because of the Emmy, but we're certainly, it's been really good for the company's profile. It's a really lovely thing to have. You know, sometimes you can inexplicably win an award for work that you think is okay, but this is actually winning an award for work that we're really proud of, you know, which I think is 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 a double whammy. So, yeah, it's good. It's uh, it's sort of sitting at work in a little glass cabinet with a light on it now, and, you know, every time I see it, I kind of feel great. How did it compare between working on a feature yeah. and then working on the television program? Usually you would think there would be a big difference. Yeah, well, Thrones, is, as you know, is no, it's an exception. Um, I mean, the only difference is we were still rendering at HD for, for Thrones. We weren't going to, to, you know, 2K or 4K or whatever. I imagine this was a pretty complex project, but say on a scale of, say, 7 to 10, how would you rate this one? 10. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it was a ten. Yeah. It was it was super super difficult. Uh, yeah, but I got to say the level of care in that work exceeds anything else we've done. It was probably the hardest job I've ever worked on. I recently read a book about Pixar's history. They talked about Toy Story being like inspirational because it was the first three D animation feature. Did working on Game of Thrones enhance the work ethic of the people? Yeah. Oh, look, you know, you get a whole whole bunch of fanboys together and make make Thrones. Everybody's very few people hadn't seen the show, uh, and most people who worked on it who hadn't seen the show sort of caught up. So I think you know, I remember eight months before we started when the, when the thing well before we finished when that first previous came in and the very first frame of the previous was Jon Snow standing there and we all were like oh. There you go. There's a spoiler, you know, and 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 we're all kind of duty bound to not being a party where people are like blink twice if Jon Snow's alive, you know that stuff. And you sort of, I've never held a secret more tightly in my life. Well, one of the things that was really creepy about working on Game of Thrones was the fact that you're still working on it when the show's going to air. Like episode yep. one had screened, episode two had screened, and we were episode nine and we were still doing shots. It's frightening. I mean, people think it's all finished and someone just pulls it off a shelf and decides to screen it, but it's still being made. That road's being paved ahead of you driving towards it, you know. It's terrible. Well, at least you know the deadline's the deadline. and Well, that's it. It's going to be done on that day. (laughs) Absolutely. I'd like to move away from Game of Thrones now and talk a little bit more about you. Could you tell us a little bit about your personal work? 
if you think it's important and sort of why you do it and what you do and do you find it enjoyable? Yeah, I love it. I mean, I do a lot of... I write kids' books and I publish and and I just do a lot of art for no real reason just to... uh, I'm constantly... uh, excited by new things like I'll, I'll learn there's a new technique or there's something like I use Blender a lot at home and I love that because it's open source and it's a community and I learn about stuff and contribute and make art and show people what you can do with it and I like ZBrush and I like writing and you know like I think it's important to surround yourself with art and to surround yourself with that kind of stuff helps you along your way with your job as well. It helps with the job, but does it also help you relax and get your mind off work? Yeah, it does help with the job, yeah. but also um, uh, sometimes you, you work... Like, if you get into into art or animation as a job because you love it, sometimes you find yourself doing a job where it's not fulfilling your artistic urges. You know, you, you feel like you've got to get home and do your own stuff just to get it out of your system a bit. So yeah. there's a bit of that as well. The character development and yeah, just script writing. Noodling away, yeah. Where do you find inspiration? I spend a lot of time on ArtStation, which is this, you know, great online portal where you just see people, you know, giving away the most amazing work. They're just sort of promoting stuff. That that stuff's constantly surprising and, and, and inspiring to me just to see that quality of art. You know, you look back at the old masters or you look back at Van Gogh or even, you know, like even more recent, those guys weren't surrounded by as much competition. So, you know, you can look at a Rembrandt and say, well, that's amazing. Yeah, but sure, if he was today, if he was putting his stuff on ArtStation, he'd be lost in the crowd. Yeah. There's, there's, there's billions of people that can do the most amazing stuff uh, and so much of that's just pouring out every day. It's, it's quite overwhelming but inspirational at the same time. What are you working on now and mm. what do you find interesting at the moment? What would you like to work on in the future? I've been playing a lot with VR at the moment. My son bought himself a Vive, so I've been really sort of, anytime he's not on it, I'm there. <laughs> I, was, I was docking a spaceship last night. It was cool. I find that stuff interesting. I find new techniques of filmmaking interesting. I've always been very interested in digital puppetry for years. You know, that kind of idea of, the, you know, you're starting to see people making TV for kids, which is all real time. You know, they've, they've got avatars and they're, manually puppeteer. I love that stuff. I love the immediacy of that stuff because, I mean, ultimately what I'm interested in is telling stories and telling. Animation is is the most laborious process, uh, the the most complicated way to tell a simple story. You know, if I say to you, you know, like there was a boy eating an ice cream and it fell over, uh, you know, the top, the ice cream fell on the floor, you've got that in your head. If I had to do that digitally, I had to build the kid, rig the kid, build the ice cream, light it, blah, 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 I'd be there for six months trying to show you exactly that same thing. Yep. So it's a very uh, inefficient way to tell story. So all this real-time stuff and all this much more immediate feedback stuff I find really interesting. I think that's a great place to finish up. Thanks very much for taking the time out of your busy schedule. My pleasure. I've really enjoyed Me it. Me too. Thank you. It was very interesting hearing about your career and I think that a lot of people will get a lot out of this podcast. Cool. Thanks very much for listening. If you like this podcast, it would be fantastic if you could go to iTunes and give us a positive review. It helps other people find us. You can check us out at mastersofmotion.com.au where you can see all the work that we talked about today and lots more outstanding motion design work. Or you could come find us on Facebook. And while you're there, it'd be great if you could give us a like. You can find Glenn Millenhorst at allura.com.au or glennmillenhorst.com. Thanks very much for listening. I hope you have a great week.
Masters of Motion. Masters of Motion. Bye bye.